kids that young should not be subjected to the weight of the world you know on their shoulders it's making sure that kids understand that they're all the agents the agency that they have to yes. affect yes. positive changes so there's so many benefits in economic opportunities and you know kids need more opportunities for social entrepreneurship etc it's really important both for the emotional lives of teachers and youth educators outside the classroom as it is for the kids that they are teaching Hello and welcome to the Earthy Chats podcast, where we're cross-pollinating environmental education ideas. I'm one of your hosts, Jade Harvey Beryl. I'm joining you as the Outreach and Events Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAM, and the Outdoor Learning Store, which is your one-stop shop for outdoor learning, equipment and resources. I also run Stoked on Science. It's an environmental education and consultancy business based in the interior mountains of BC. And I'm your other host, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher, an environmental education charity that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, PD, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers. Let's get started. So that's where hands-on outdoor learning is so critical to kids, to successful education. There's lots of great things to learn indoors, but if you don't have, if part of your education significant part isn't outdoors either in the natural world learning about the natural world or engaged in community projects that are beneficial to your local community you know the social engagement piece you know you're not you're not emotionally engaged in the world and kids come to into classrooms with very different learning styles and you know to Okay, hello and welcome to this episode of Earthy Chats, where we're cross-pollinating environmental education ideas. Joining us for this episode is Tim Grant. Now, he's the publisher of Green Teacher. He co-edited the quarterly magazine with Gail Littlejohn from 1991 to 2012, at which point he became the editor. He's co-edited seven Green Teacher books, including Teaching Teens About Climate Change and edited three, including teaching kids about climate change. Tim was also Green Teacher's first webinar host, taking the helm for 85 broadcasts. He lives in Toronto, Ontario, where he is active in various green initiatives. And uh, we're very excited to have you here today, Tim. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, now, the listeners obviously can't see this, but you sort of fulfilled this sort of dream or sort of vision I had in my mind of an editor sort of sitting in this beautiful office with books all around, you know, <laughs> just sort of leaning back, sort of pen in one hand and and, and just, you know, scribbling furiously. Um, and, and obviously nobody will see this, but that's basically exactly what your office looks like behind you. Well, thank you. It's a funny story just to say that uh, we were both teachers prior to uh, starting at what initially was a Canadian edition of a British magazine. Uh, and we were, we thought, you know, as teachers, we had, you know, good, good length of holidays and this would be even better just to kind of work part-time on a magazine. But the sad truth was it was just the opposite. It was, uh, it was a good, it was a good run, but it was, it was seven days a week. Uh, and if you didn't mm -hmm. work on the seventh day, you felt guilty. 
Um, and and uh, but it, it was a great run. We met amazing people. We had a good chance to travel to conferences, sometimes around the world, but mostly within North America. And over the years, just developed this family of friends in every corner of every state and province and territory. It was it was really a fun fun effort. So. The room, the room that you looked at in the in the uh, when I had my video on a minute ago was not nearly as um, as attractive uh, when Green Teacher filled the walls behind me with mag, you know boxes and envelopes and all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> Happy to maintain and provide some illusion at the moment. Yes, I'm like, don't break the illusion. Um, see, and you're saying you travel and, and worked hard. I, here's me just thinking you just read for a living and, and sit in a chair and, and have someone deliver you cups of tea while you while you read voraciously, but uh, that's okay. I'll, uh, I'll be able to get past it. Good, good. Um, so we're here really uh, to talk about uh, climate change education or, or, you know, teaching about um planet earth and and all things green and we talk these days um there's obviously been a lot of research there's a lot of a sort of increase in the movement on effective climate change education and what we're seeing are these sort of core pillars coming up things like student empowering uh empowerment sorry focusing on solutions um making learning local and relevant and place-based uh, engaging learners emotions and then emphasizing climate justice now you've been in the game a while um and i'm wondering how this compares to what was being discussed you know 30 years ago sorry to to show your age um but um yeah i'm just wondering how it's how that's changed and developed for you well it has changed changed a lot not just with me but with the you know environmental education climate ed movement and so on you know 30 years ago climate environmental education was still pretty rudimentary there was a there was a real schism that wasn't that was slowly becoming apparent between many people regarded environmental education as introducing issues to kids and getting kids concerned about the issues of the day. And indeed, there were lots of op lots of examples of where educators, with all the best of intentions, brought, you know, age-inappropriate issues into the classroom and, um, and rightly riled up some of the parents and all that good stuff. Um, and it gradually there was a recognition that really the, the focus, the, the purpose of environmental education is to teach core concepts. And, and obviously at the very young age, that's, you know, it's, it's really to help kids get excited and curious and, and out into the natural world and, and developing a sense of curiosity. And really, maybe by the by grade six, where the brains have matured, you know, their brains have matured to the point where they're starting to make sense of different points of view in the world. And, and they can be again engaged in at that point, beginning to be engaged in the in the issues that they're hearing about on in, in the media and so on. So that was a big shift and it took quite a while. And there are still people, probably Ian still hears from people who say, I, there's this great issue. We've just got to get it out there, and it's really important to be in schools. And you know, can I write an article on such and such? And I was constantly, oh, yeah. when I was editing, you know, having to say to people, "No, that's not really our point." But here's a way you can do this: if you can turn to some educators, develop some practical lessons, then write an article that talks about why it's important for educators to to teach and know about engage kids with this issue. 
but it's got to be coupled with some practical hands-on activities that really bring out the concepts that are key to understanding the issue and so on. So, so there was a big shift from 30 years ago. Climate education really wasn't on the landscape then. I think we did our first full theme issue on climate change in 1997. But again, it was those were really early days. It was very clear there were scientists were already, you know, the alarm bells were going off in the scientific community, uh, but it hadn't really hit the mainstream. Uh, there were educators beginning to talk about it. There were workshops at conferences I was attending. But um, again, you know, we were by by within a year or two of starting in 1991, we became a, a North American wide magazine. So we were dealing with the politics south of the border that were much more resistant and in a way have become both much more accepting and more resistant at the same time in recent years. <laughs> yeah. But the other big issue at the time was the turn was very the big difference between the two countries was that climate change was a, a phrase that was well understood in Canada, but completely, you know, unfamiliar in the US. The term global warming was the term, and it was used here too. But global warming really fed into a misunderstanding and a mis a, a underestimating the problem of, of climate change because global warming sounds like this gradual warming. And for people, especially in northern US and Canada, southern Canada, the idea of a warmer winter is just, you know, yeah, we could see a problem with climate, but yeah, hey, it's pretty nice actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so, people, people don't mind, do they? <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of, it, it's an academic problem, but practically it's quite pleasant. And so I think, but, but the problem was the global warming conveyed this sense of that this was a gradual warming and we're an adaptable species after all, we're going to, you know, this is okay. It's a problem for down the road. And we really weren't seeing the, the effects of natural systems of dramatic weather events and nature disasters that were they're so common becoming commonplace now so there was a these feedback loops these feedback loops that that go back into the system that we can't predict what will happen when things interact with each other again scientists were beginning to talk about that but it was definitely not even in the educators uh, mindset at that point so, you know, as I say, but it was clear that the, the, the alarm bells were off and we, by the late 90s, were pretty much started publishing on a regular basis, you know, articles and activities in the wide sphere of topics that are in this umbrella called climate change education. And they really were diverse topics. If you look, if you were to open up that 1997 issue of Green Teacher, and I say open up because of course it was a print magazine back then, <laughs> um, you would have seen that it was a collection of activities that um, some were explicit about talking about global warming slash climate change and getting kids thinking about it. But often they were related to teaching about renewable energy or energy conservation strategies for home and communities and schools. There was a real, you know, understanding the difference between weather and climate. There were lots of different topics associated, but it, those were very early days. And over time, that really changed. And, you know, climate change is a much more mature education uh, than it was back then. Wow, you hit on so many points. I don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, I definitely feel like the, like you say, the misnomer um, of global warming. Um, yeah, sort of also being, um, you know, consistent across the globe that, oh, well, you know, and we're seeing different, 
you know weather events here and and giving people a room uh, to break in with their their naysaying you know oh well this must not be this and this must not be that and I've had a lot of conversations with adults where um who maybe even a few years ago sort of denied climate change and I said okay so how does the system work then and they look at you and I said well okay if you tell me that the climate's not changing explain to me in detail how the climate system of our earth works and then we can have a discussion about whether or not anthropogenically a human we are forcing the the climate mechanisms and and most adults can't do that and then you've got this generation of kids who have got access to the most incredible plethora of information on the internet and through social media and it's it's I've talked about this before I do with some of my older sort of 10 11 12 grade students about dissemination of of information like who wrote this article what is their bias what is the the point of this are they writing this in order to achieve something you know what are their qualifications and their their knowledge base and they were just completely this small group were quite oblivious to that and i i just think the the issues have changed now we know the science is there the science is there it's just how that information is passed on um and we're still fighting against industry and against politics we are, but it has changed. And I do, your comments uh, reminded me that I think it was around the year 2000, I, there was a scientist at the University of Houston called Tim Ball, who was a noted climate skeptic. And he his research showed that he used the example uh, that uh, he looked at the, the temperature readings, you know, which at that point were basically one, approximately one degree Celsius warmer around the globe at that moment than they had been in pre-industrial times. And he looked at the temperature readings from orbiting satellites and said, no, it's one, it's actually a degree cooler. And so he was very, he was kind of led the, the science charge against the, those who were affirming the, the presence of global warming uh, as, as, as a fact. And it was very interesting because around 2000, so he'd been from 1995 on to 2000, he and others had been sort of putting out semi, you know, really pretty bad science around all this stuff. But it was, it didn't have, it wasn't knocked off the pillar really until 2000 when some of his peers really scrutinized the research about orbiting satellites. And what they discovered was that most of the orbiting satellites at that time were older. And the new ones, when they go around a round planet, go in a round arc. But as they get older, the arc becomes more elliptical. And therefore, the elevations of those orbiting satellites varies enormously, depending on the distance from the Earth that they are in, in that elliptical orbit. And when they factored in that, understand that the majority of old of satellites were older and in the elliptical orbiting patterns, they were able to to confirm exactly what climate scientists were saying about the average warming and that they were able to to debunk Tim Ball's factors, you know, his, his research. And once that happened, that was really the last time that science was the argument against, you know, the current understanding of, of climate change. Since it's become, the, the resistance is much more political, still funded by the oil companies as it was back in the day but it has changed a lot. And meanwhile, across educators across the US and Canada 
overwhelmingly recognize the science and recognize its import. So, so it's a, we have a way more receptive audience, but we still have responsibilities as educators in, in both to engage kids with age-appropriate resources and, and also responsibilities about not, because climate change is a daunting issue and you can easily you know, drive people crazy, adults and kids, with, into hopeless despair, unless you're, and, and that was one of the failures of the early climate education was there was a lot of despair and hopelessness. And there's a wonderful educator at the University of New Brunswick, Doug McKenzie Moore, who's kind of a leading social marketing expert in one of his early books more than 20 years ago, just said 75% of adults don't, you know, turn off the, you know, when they, we used to watch TV news, they would say they would turn off the TV when the disaster stories came on. They just didn't, their lives were too busy. They just don't, didn't want to deal with it. Most of the education community that green, reads Green Teacher and listens to podcasts like this are the other 24% who say, okay, no, I get it. I'm, I can emotionally deal with this. I, you know, that's not going to ruin my life to know that we are, we're in real trouble and we need to focus on it, but I can handle that. And so that's really true that those percentages are probably true of teenagers as well. And, um, and I, so I think it's really important if we're to be effective, it's not just to be age appropriate, but it's important. And I think one of the early messages from climate educators was if you're not balancing in your program with the, act, the actions that, that humans can take that are gonna reduce our carbon footprint, along with you know, a recognition of the seriousness of the challenge before us, it's an inappropriate you know, presentation. It's an inappropriate form of climate education. And that was a big, that, I think that's a, a recognition that's common now, but it wasn't in the early days. And it took a while for people to recognize that. And I think that also has helped to reduce a lot of the conflict from you know, conservative communities as well. No, it's incredibly powerful and I, I do see that over yeah the last decade that feelings and thoughts about this education uh, in the school systems and I've been in the school system in the UK and Australia and New Zealand and now Canada that it is definitely um, yeah becoming more open and more willing and then the education resources are improving I mean I definitely left my undergrad where I was specializing in 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 paleoclimatology but you know obviously part of that was what was happening to the climate uh since we started um messing with it and it was quite devastating you know um I've I left my my undergrad with this feeling of uh, a bit of feeling of despair because I sort of knew exactly what was going on um, and was very and have continued to be worried about it. I mean, I've taken action in my own life and in the work I do. Um, but I think it's really important to try and, yes, see positive, see optimism. And we have to we have to go that way. Yeah, there was, you know, early on, there was an, an educator, David Sobel, who uh, and I paraphrase his famous phrase. I say my version of of his wonderful point was no natural disasters before grade four. And really that was that was a pivotal uh, point to wrecking again that, that we have to have age appropriate resources. And you know, kids that young should not be subjected to the weight of the world you know, on their shoulders. And, and there's lots of great research that says even with older kids, it's important that older kids know that the parents around them or the adults or many of the adults around them actually care about those same problems 
And when older, even older kids see that, it takes the weight off their shoulders and makes it a little bit easier for them emotionally to deal with it because it's not their problem that they have to deal with that nobody else cares about. Hello, listeners. This is Ian. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast, produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a registered charity in Canada serving environmental educators in Canada, the U.S., and overseas. For only $32 a year, you can subscribe to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. I think another really important part of this, especially with young children, sort of ages nine and lower, is bringing in that sense of awe and wonder with the natural world and opportunity that's available. Like I know for me, when I was a kid, and you talk about being exposed to climate change education at developmentally inappropriate times, I remember very specifically the class, the room, what it looked like, what it smelled like when I first learned about the greenhouse effect and global warming and polar ice caps melting. I was eight years old, grade three, and it terrified me. Like the word climate was a no-go word. Like I couldn't even think about it. How do we, for, for students who have that sort of association with the word climate or the phrase climate change, how do we reverse that by instilling that sense of awe and wonder in the natural world without getting into the weeds of the problems? So I think there's three things. First of all, as we've already said, it's for very young kids. It's developing, a, getting kids outdoors into the natural world, developing a sense of curiosity about the world around them, not just the natural world. Uh, and also being engaged in restoration projects that give you a sense of hope that you can improve things. That's critical mm -hmm. at all ages, frankly, but particularly for the very young. Um, and also getting kids, you know, the, I love the one of the big movements that emerged at the very end of my uh, time at Green Teacher as editor was the nature kindergarten movement where kids are outdoors all season, all winter long, day after day. You know, that's that's a transformational change for people to, in our in the generations from generations past of, of people wreck, especially in urban areas, becoming more comfortable with the natural world. But I think for older people to answer your question in other ways, Ian, again, it's, it's two things. One is that it's making sure that kids understand that they're all the agents, the agency that they have to yes. affect positive changes. And this is where climate change is less controversial. It's when kids are investigating you know, engaged in energy conservation strategies in promoting renewable energy. Those are all things that most parents also support, whether or not they're climate, even the climate skeptics, you know, appreciate the need to save energy and save money and not be wasteful and so on. So, so that's a one, a, another dimension. And I think that, you know, finally, there are there's also the reality that as the climate changes, there are enormous economic opportunities. You know, mm -hmm. the climate change dry is driving society to do the things we should have done a long time ago, which is to, and when you reduce fossil fuel emissions, for example, by fossil fuel use in cars and in home heating, for example, not, not only are you reducing, you know, the, the impact of climate change, but you're also improving air quality. You know, the number of kids in cities who have asthma, you know, has really increased over the years. 
because of air pollution. And so, so there's so many benefits and economic opportunities and, you know, kids need more opportunities for social entrepreneurship, et cetera. And the, the green economy shift is one that is full of opportunities uh, and highly skilled jobs, et cetera, that, that uh, so we really need the school system, especially at the high school level to begin tuning kids into that world the emerging world that's coming fast um, and which community colleges are probably more attuned to, at least in this province, uh, than the high school system at this point. But, you know, there's going to be enormous opportunities and, and you know, the, the urgency is there. That's always in the background. But in the forefront are, you know, the opportunities to really have a much cleaner, greener world and one that is more and I think, Jade, you made the point about climate justice, which is the, the new kid in the climate education <laughs> uh, universe. Uh, and I think that's, the, that's a key one now because, you know, we've also seen in the last 20 years enormous inequality. And that makes solving these problems, you know, you can't solve climate change without also solving inequality. And, and uh and so that's a big one too. And so I think you know kids kids care about both of those things, and they appreciate the the hard the hardships that both of those things uh, create, and the importance of solving them and solving them at the same time through this green economy shift is huge. It's such an interesting discussion about climate justice because this I have seen used as a wedge issue, even within the environmental movement. There are some people who say just focus on decarbonizing like with the green new deal in the u.s there were some folks some very prominent climate communicators and climate scientists who said just focus on decarbonizing don't worry about adding in things like guaranteed minimum income and climate justice and i mean how do we sort of navigate the complexity of that because ultimately and people like michael mann have written about this ultimately having environmentalists arguing among themselves just plays into the into the hands of the Exxon Mobiles and the BPs of the world. Well, I think we're still in early days on the climate justice. It really mm -hmm. is the new kid on the block, and as such, you know, I've seen it takes time to kind of for these for to to develop educational strategies. I think the first article that you know we published was a British Columbia piece uh, done by the Canadian Center of Policy Alternatives. They developed a curriculum kit for high schools. It, we had to search far and wide within their curriculum uh, to find something that was a little less BC focused that would be appropriate for a North American audience. But it was very clear in talking to the author of that unit, BCTF unit, that it was, you know, they were really pulling the first, it was really the first generation of curriculum. And I think we're going to see a lot better curriculum coming in the years to come uh, as because of the topics these two topics are seemingly apart, clearly integrated when you really look closely, but we haven't gone far along with it. So I don't think it's so much, I don't, within the education community, there may be, there's certainly arguments within, you know, environmental, the environmental community, and I under, yes. that's understandable. That's part of the, the ebb and flow. But I think in the education side, you know, there will be, there has to be better resources coming that will enable us to link the two topics and uh, and you know there'll always be controversy you know fighting injustice and inequality has always been controversial um, there's such a pushback in the U.S. in particular and to a lesser extent here as well so you know it's it uh, but we don't have a lot of quality resources on climate justice yet 
And uh, but I, I I think you know that's going to be one of our roles as a magazine and as a publication and as a resource hub is to help you know promote those that emerge uh, in the years to come. Absolutely. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www.outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We're Canada's non-profit resource store. We are the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAN. You can visit our website at cbeen.ca. We are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. When I um, I teach about climate change is one of the programs that I go into schools uh, to do with sort of grade five, six students. And, you know, one of my students was hand up and ask me um, are, are you a, a climate activist and I was like right <laughs> okay that's the sort of language that like kids have access to I don't remember being that socially aware at that age and I had to think about it I said because I hadn't really been to a rally or anything since I was at university and then the sort of climate Fridays for future movement happened after this and and have been involved in some local things but I really thought about you know what is an activist or how do we share um our information and so I've been really because of my background really interested in teaching the science to kids especially even students not in the low grades but students that maybe things I learn at university at least teaching them to high school students so that they had a, a deeper understanding because I don't I think it can be uh, absorbed um, so that they had this real basis to to stand on in order to to talk about it um, but I've seen these relationships we, we we think pair share like I show uh, resources or we talk about things and then I ask the kids and I explain to them like this stuff can be upsetting and it's totally okay if you're upsetting but this is a safe space for us to talk about this but we talked about glaciers melting and it's not just or you know sea ice melting and it's not just about polar bears but you know how many much of the population is reliant on um glacial slow melt for their fresh water for their drinking water and how that the vast majority of those people live in areas where they wouldn't have access to any other water so that sort of inequity and these i am just constantly amazed at every conversation I have with these students and it's different each time at how thoughtful and how deeply connected and how aware they are uh, and that giving them credit for that and not trying to yeah hide things but saying I appreciate your input your feelings your thoughts about this are important uh, and without laying all of the responsibility at their door to be the next generation that will save us with you know technology and and environmental um, development that they are important and that their opinion matters. And I think you're I think you've just encapsulated very well 
a key part of successful education, whether it's we want to call it environment or climate education, which is you're dealing with the emotional lives of students and you're acknowledging the fears, but you're also, and as an adult, you're acknowledging it to the kids, which as I said earlier, is, is a huge, uh, takes a lift off their shoulders. But, you know, emotion also, what we've also learned in education is that emotion drives attention. You know, you're not gonna learn unless you're attentive and you're not gonna be, you're not gonna learn unless you're emotionally engaged. And so that's where hands-on outdoor learning is so critical to kids, to successful education. There's lots of great things to learn indoors, but if you don't have, if part of your education, significant part isn't outdoors, either in the natural world, learning about the natural world or engaged in community projects that are beneficial to your local community, you know, the social engagement piece, you know, you're not, you're not emotionally engaged in the world and kids come to, into classrooms with very different learning styles and you know to subject the torture them with a hundred percent indoor learning even if it's on good topics you know is torture for a lot of kids and so but also even for the kids who do well inside they need to go outside too and uh to to experience other kinds of learning so it's a really exciting time to be an educator and to, to be engaging kids in this wide new world that really was only a, sort of in the, the twinkle of, of someone's eye, a few people's eyes 30 years ago to sort of have a sense of just how complete and effective, you know, this education that we are championing in the pages of Green Teacher and on podcasts like this uh, has, you know, really developed into a, a, a very well-supported pedagogy that's well, that's defensible and successful and, and, you know, still has, has a ways, lots of ways to grow, but I thought you captured it very well in the way in which you, you want to deal with, we want to engage kids, not in a talk down, but in an engagement with pedagogy. I appreciate that. And I know that, you know, a lot of the activities, I use them myself. I play the carbon game a lot with uh, my students, but in teaching kids and teaching teens about climate change, a lot of those uh, activities are designed to be outdoors or can be easily moved out there. And I've definitely found in my own work um, that that does connect kids. And Ian and I have talked massively in lots of different podcasts about how, yes, the traditional classroom structure uh, doesn't work for lots of kids and being out there just allows everyone to flourish. Um, But do you think the attitude of teachers has changed or of the decision makers in the school has changed into a more outdoor model or do you think it's been linked to the pandemic or like what kind of changes have you seen in the school systems or observed um, well well as you as you alluded to i mean the pandemic has really helped you know it's really helped get kids outdoors more i mean we not nearly enough still frankly but it gave further authority and further reasons to get out of classrooms that had inadequate ventilation, especially in older buildings of which there are so many older schools in North America. I, you know, the, the teaching staffs, obviously those who were more scientific oriented certainly understood the science and the urgency that the science was telling us of the need to teach, teach effectively, effective climate science to kids and engage them in activities about 
human agency that the ways in which we can reduce our carbon footprint and transition into a new economy. So that's been a, that's, that's certainly been a big shift as well. Um, but we have a long way to go to get kids outdoors. It's it, We still have an industrial model of education where you line kids up in rows and they have to memorize and they have to deal with standardized tests. I mean, it's really the school system is is really torn. Um, there's uh, teachers have been trained over the last 20 years with really good pedagogy of, you know, child engagement, uh, wonderful strategies. And yet they're they themselves are in this straitjacket and quite conscious of it and frustrated in many ways quite often. Um, but, you know, there, there is the push to get outdoors and have, you know, nature classrooms. You know, even I went back to the high school I taught 13 years, uh, a few years ago when it got the Greenish School Award, high school award in North America, the suburban school. And I was, it, the school building looked a lot like it did, you know, 30 years ago, but but it was, uh, but the gardens, uh, the, you know, the, the bee pollinator habitats, the solar panels, the, uh, you know, there were lots of signs of change, all driven by teachers who made it easier for other teachers to get involved. And that's, you know, there's the strategies within schools where the, the key teachers who care about these issues, you know, help make it easier for traditional teachers to get their kids outdoors and share the joy of outdoor learning um, with them. It's in a, it's, is a, uh, is a, it still remains a key strategy as it was 30 years ago. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Stoked on Science, providing engaging, educational, and fun programs across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organization looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programs that go beyond the basic science topics, like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going. If so, visit www.stokedonscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. Moving on to teaching older learners, particularly middle school and high school students, when you get a bit more into the content side of just how climate works and the impacts of climate change, the opportunities of climate change. There's a lot in there and you've kind of boiled it down into four main dimensions. And you mentioned this in the forward to the two books. Could you just sort of walk us through before we finish up here, the basics of those four dimensions, especially for educators who are feeling a bit lost and just don't really know where to start? Sure. Probably by 1999, even before we published a book called Teaching About Climate Change and a French Equivalent, I was getting invitations to do presentations. And of course, I'm not, I didn't have a science background. So I started paying attention to virtually every news story that would come out through environmental listservs and and news feeds and so on. And over time, I began to realize there was a, it took quite a while, a few years to recognize there was a pattern that they, all of the news stories fit into one of these four categories. Uh, And then I started when I started thinking about that and I was able to be at conferences where climate scientists were the keynote speakers, I would go up to them and afterwards with this notebook saying, here's, I've come to this view that all of the news stories can fit into the following four dimensions. The first of which is global warming, what, what used to be the common term misnomer for climate change. 
but it does reflect, as we said earlier in the podcast, this gradual warming. You know, the Earth is one Celsius degree warmer than it was in pre-industrial times, and carbon emissions are increasing. And that's the part of the, that's least controversial that the, most of the public accepts, and so do governments. But increasingly, there was this whole other three other categories of news stories. And the second one, probably most common, was were stories that I called related to climatic instability. And those are the also fairly common, uh, you know, the notion that we have way more hurricanes and much stronger hurricanes hitting the southern part of North America and mm-hmm. other parts of the world, typhoons that are of greater force than ever before. And so, but also flooding you know, in inland regions, you know, that just uh, torrential rains. uh, And uh, my own house had a basement flood, you know, about 15 years ago from two days of enormous rain and back-to-back days in Toronto. Not nearly of the scale of tragedies elsewhere, but I got to tell you, my downtown neighborhood was pretty freaked out to have a couple inches of water in many basements that didn't have proper drainage and so it's even you know people it started hitting home everywhere but so climatic instability and i should just say uh as i move from into the this and the next two these next three climatic instability and the following two were the really kept it was clear that these were the topics that kept climate scientists up at night they were a source of much greater worry um, because obviously we know the impacts of uh, flooding and uh, and uh, you know terrible hurricanes, uh, the the devastation that they that those kind of dramatic events can cause and the economic costs associated. But the third dimension was the sort of consequences. And and Jade, you alluded to this earlier. You know, and I use the example typically of the the loss of Arctic sea ice. You know, that that used to be a highly reflective surface that reflected the earth the sun's rays back into space. And now with the sea ice gone, you know, absorb enormous amounts of heat. And as a result of that enormous amounts of heat, you know, we have the loss of sea ice, we have a a much less stable uh, climate. And it's in other words, a feedback loop where it accelerates the warming that's going on. The initial cause, it's caused by the initial warming the consequence now accelerates the warming. And there's several other examples of that. You know, some of them are particularly scary, but that's the consequences of global warming. And there were many news stories about that. And the the least talked about topic uh, outside of scientific circles, uh, James Hansen, uh, the former NASA scientist was kind of the leading advocate of this topic, which was this notion, I called it a climactic flip but there's many ways of describing it. And I'll never yeah. forget being in the Southern US and a woman, a good friend of mine who was a leading environmental educator in Mexico came up to me and she just said, Tim, we don't call it, you're using a neutral term. We don't use terms like that in Mexico. We, it's catastrophic climate change. But what all the terms refer to is this notion that at a certain point, we know this from geological record, that at a certain point in the buildup of greenhouse gases, we will flip into a new climate that will be many degrees Celsius warmer. And that can that flip can happen in as short as a 20 year period, uh, as we know from past geologic record. So, and there's again, like the consequences, like the climate topic of climatic instability, the topic of what I call the climactic flip 
is highly controversial. It's highly debated in, in scientific circles, but there's a recognition amongst most climate scientists that all four of these are focuses of their research and are legitimate. And all of these topics are now at this state well observed and discussed and debated in the, the reports by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And there's been a huge shift in recognition of these topics in those reports. So that's those are the four dimensions. And uh, that's my small contribution to the topic. It's incredibly important. And I think the, the fact that they understand that these thresholds exist, because we do see them in the geological record, we see it in the climatic proxy record. Um, but we don't know at what point that, that we will actually shift across. But if we do dump all of the fresh water that is locked up in our ice sheets um, into the ocean, we will switch off the thermohaline circulation, which is this conveyor belt of heat that that transports and redistributes the, the energy of the sun from the equator to the poles. Like we will effectively get very hot and then I mean the research that I, I follow says we're then going to plunge into an ice age and it'll be interesting to see how well we cope with that as a civilization. Absolutely I think this <laughs> the, the four dimensions also have another side and I should I would be remiss if I didn't mention them. The value of for educators in these four dimensions which I you know brought up top you know a workshop and conference after conference was that I began to realize just from the looks in people's faces was that it, if it helped them appreciate, be able to, basically what I argued was, just as it was the case for me, they would, if they paid attention to news, to, to the latest findings, realize that everything that they, um, that they were learning about did actually fit into these four categories. And if, it, if that gave them comfort to say, okay, I understand this. I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not an expert. I, don't, I can't be a scientist. I'm, I'm, I'm an expert in other things, but it's not climate science. But this framework gives comfort to say, okay, I understand the, these different dimensions. And it also helps them to share that with kids to say, yes, this is an example of. And in other words, the more adults, kids have a sense that the adults have the big picture that also takes the weight off their shoulders. So it's, a, it's really an important both for the emotional lives of teachers and youth educators outside the classroom as it is for the kids that they are teaching. Um, and that was the value of that framework that uh, became apparent, not just as a way of understanding the world, but of sharing it with others. And I think this is a great opportunity to bring us full circle and come to a close is you talked earlier about how we need to instill in students this sense of agency. We need to talk about the issues, but also talk about the solutions. And with topics like the climatic flip, which is almost like going off a cliff, that's a way that you could characterize it. Understandably, that will bring a lot of fear to a lot of people. What can an educator do to acknowledge the realistic possibility of that happening while preventing students from just completely shutting off and giving up? Final thoughts. Well, I think, you know, to me, the, the key is that there were educators, particularly in the UK, who have been proponents of what they call futures education for a long time. And the, the key point that I took from them uh, was that the helping people appreciate that normally in schools, history is a backward looking exercise. We look at our past history to understand our present, but futures education really turns us in the other direction in a very positive way, which is to help kids appreciate 
that the future is that part of history that we can change. That we make cho the choices we make today are helping to direct the shape of society going forward, and that's the key. So, it, you know, what futures educators used to say was, "Look, if we continue to build highways, let's say around our cities, if we're going to spend our transportation dollars that way, what's our society going to look like in 20 years?" Um, if we go the other way, and so that's what the exercises that, that they encouraged educators to use. But I love that phrase. And if kids do have a sense that the future is that part of history, that they can be agents of positive changes, that's a huge and a wonderful motivator that can provide, you know, a positive, hopeful sense of the future. And that's what kids deserve from a, an education in, in 2022. I can't think of a better way to end off than with that sentiment. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim, for your insights. Uh, obviously, working together with you at Green Teacher, we have spoken a lot about these topics and much more, but I know I learned a lot in this discussion and really appreciate your sharing your time and your insights. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Jay, great to meet you and uh, really applaud the work that you two are doing with, with these podcasts. So keep up the wonderful work. I'm, I applaud from afar, but not too far. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thank you so much for joining and sharing. Yes, I learn something new. And yes, I utilize your resources all the time in my own work. So yeah, you've influenced me from afar for a long time. It's great to finally meet you. Well, keep up the great work you're both doing. It's uh uh, it's it's wonderful to see how Green Teacher has has uh, blossomed in the last couple of years, and I'm looking forward to to helping uh, helping it continue to do so. Absolutely, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars and cbean, that's c-b-e-e-n.org for a range of environmental resources, including professional development opportunities, grant information and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stokedonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat. Well, this was fun, you guys, and thanks for yeah. Yes, I know. it's we got to go and do the rest of the day, but it was so lovely to meet you, Tim. I hope it's not the last. Likewise. Yeah, and we'll no doubt chat soon, Tim, and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. It's feeling much more springy out there here in southern Ontario. Yeah.